Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Stairway to Danger by John Blaine. Volume 4, Chapter 8, 50 Frantic Seconds The cub struck the water with one wing low. The wing hit first, whirling the small plane around, pulling the nose into the water. During the instant before the propeller snapped, the engine was barely turning over because Rick had cut the throttle, but had not killed the ignition. As the propeller gave, the engine raced wildly, the broken propeller shafts dragging the plane into the water like a motorboat screw. Then the engine was drowned into silence, leaving the plane standing nose down with one wing off and the other dragging. Rick had been dazed by the impact, but not knocked out. He lay across Scotty, limp, his head ringing. Cold water brought him to full consciousness, and he began to struggle. A giant bubble broke loose and raced through the open window, taking most of their air with it. Rick fought his way headfirst to the door and struggled to get through the window. And then he realized that Scotty was not moving. Water poured into the cabin, knocking him sideways with its force. There hadn't been time to be afraid. Now a touch of panic gripped him, and he kicked violently against the instrument panel, forcing himself back into the luggage compartment. His groping hands felt Scotty's jacket. He took a firm grip and heaved, his feet braced. The plane was almost entirely underwater, but some air remained trapped in the cabin. Scotty's body shifted, but didn't come forward. Rick tugged again, desperation in his arms. He didn't realize he was yelling his pal's name until the water surged up to his lips, and he gulped a great, salty mouthful. He gagged, then gasped for air, lifting his head high. The cabin was almost full of water now, as the remaining air seeped out. He fought to pull Scotty loose, using his legs for leverage. He shifted to get a better grip, and one foot smashed through the plexiglass windshield and caught fast. In sudden panic, he kicked violently, trying to free his foot. The plexiglass tore a great furrow in his leg, and the water was suddenly cloudy with blood, but his foot came free. His groping hands found the back of the seat, and he pulled himself upward. Holding with one hand, he found Scotty's belt and gave a heave that used up most of his strength. Scotty came out of the luggage compartment and floated down on top of Rick. There was no air left. Rick fought free and began to let the breath out of his lungs in tiny driblets. He tried to move Scotty headfirst through the window, but the boy's legs caught in the control column. Despairingly, Rick realized he didn't have breath left to do any more. His hands caught the window frame and he pulled himself outward, tangled for a terrible moment with the wreckage of a strut, and then he shot to the surface. He reached it as the last of his air gave out. 
As he sucked in fresh air greedily, he caught a glimpse of men running toward the beach. Then he surfaced, dived, and grabbed the fuselage of the plane and pulled himself downward. Only the tail surfaces were above the water now. The trailing strut struck him across the chest. He grabbed it and used it for additional leverage, dragging himself downward toward the cabin. He had to get Scotty. He had to. He forced himself to think calmly as he fought his way toward the cabin door. Get the door open. That was it. He kicked frantically and felt the plexiglass of the window behind the luggage compartment. His eyes weren't working well. Now that he needed desperately to see what he was doing, his eyes kept blurring. He felt for the cabin door, found it, then fingered his way back to the door handle. It turned easily, but the door wouldn't open. He put both hands on the handle, then braced his feet against the side of the plane. One foot tore through the fabric, but the other hit a structural member and held. The door flew open, propelling him backward. He saw the broken strut sliding past and grabbed at it, held fast, then heaved himself forward again. The open door loomed blackly ahead. He had a clear view for an instant, then his vision fogged again. His groping hands touched cloth, then hair. He gripped the hair with all his strength and pulled back. Scotty came out of the cabin head first, feet and arms trailing limply. Rick got an arm around his pal's chest and began to kick his way upward. He was almost out of breath, his head roaring. He let the air out in tiny bubbles, legs and one arm flailing. His face upturned to the surface. He could see light ahead, and then it got cloudy again. He knew there was a long way to go. The pressure in his chest was unbearable. He let out air a little faster and then increased his kicking. Scotty was dead weight dragging them down. Rick's free arm drove downward in steady but weakening strokes, and there was a redness in front of his eyes. He let out the last of the air from his lungs in an effort to decrease the pressure, and blackness closed in. He kept struggling upward, fighting the terrible urge to breathe, feeling consciousness slip from him. Something grabbed him and shot him violently to the surface. Fresh air flooded into his tortured lungs, and he opened his mouth wide, gasping, he opened his eyes, and light struck his eyeballs painfully. He was dimly conscious of pressure under his chin, forcing his head back. He closed his eyes and breathed deeply. Weakness had him. He couldn't move or even think. He knew he was moving, but he didn't know how, nor did he think about it until sand grated under him. Then he remembered and yelled, Scotty! He's all right, Hobart Zircon's deep voice said. Easy, Rick, I've got you. The big scientist picked him up bodily and carried him to the parched grass of Pirate's Field. At the same instant, Hartson Brandt strode from the water with Scotty slung over his shoulder. Rick's all right, Zircon said. Hartson Brandt snapped. Scotty isn't. He put the boy face down on the grass and turned his head to one side, felt in his mouth for obstructions, and then pulled his tongue forward. Kneeling with one leg between Scotty's thighs and the other on the outside, he began artificial respiration. A little water gushed from Scotty's mouth, and there was a gurgle as air rushed in on the release. Rick lay unmoving, still gasping for air. He couldn't see what was going on next to him. For perhaps two minutes, the scientist kept up his rhythmic motion. Then he looked up at Big Hobart Zircon. 
He's breathing. Hartzenbrandt's voice was quietly triumphant. He changed the rhythm to correspond with Scotty's breathing, and in a few minutes the boy groaned. The two men watched with anxious faces as Scotty's breathing grew less spluttery and finally was almost normal. Then they went over him for broken bones. Finding none, Hobart Zircon lifted him in a fireman's carry and started with long strides for the big house. Mrs. Brandt had remained in the house long enough to call a doctor and to get Tony Briati underway to the mainland in one of the speedboats. Dr. Shannon, who had started to the beach with the two scientists, was intercepted and sent back to the lab for a first aid kit. With everything prepared, Mrs. Brandt ran to the beach just as Zircon lifted Scotty. She got to his side in time to see Scotty open his eyes. It was typical of the ex-Marine that his first almost inaudible gasping words were, Mom, you're upside down. Mrs. Brandt kissed him briefly, then told Zircon to put him to bed. And then she hurried to Rick's side. Things were making a little more sense now to Rick. He tried to sit upright. Where's Scotty? He's all right, son, Hartson Brandt replied. Zircon is taking him to the house. Mrs. Brandt's face had gone white at the sight of Rick's bloody leg, but she said calmly, Lie down, Rick. I want to look at you. She motioned to Shannon, who was running toward them with the first aid kit, and then pulled Rick's torn trouser leg aside. The wound was long and deep, but not serious, and it was already clotting. We won't disturb it, Mrs. Brandt decided. Howard, let me have the scissors. Dr. Shannon produced them from the kit. Rick's mother cut the trouser leg away completely, then said to his father, We have to carry him. I think an army cot would do. Don't you have one in the lab? No need, the scientist replied. We'll use the three-man lift and carry. You take his head, dear. I'll be in the middle, and Howard can take his legs. Under the scientist's direction, they knelt in a row at Rick's side, lifted him to their knees, and then picked him up. He was rapidly coming back to full consciousness. I can walk, he protested. Hartson Brandt grinned at him. I'd hate to see you try. Mrs. Brandt said gently, Be quiet, Rick. You can talk when we get you settled comfortably. The new families had gathered a few moments after the crash, but Hartson Brandt waved them away. Too many people could cause more confusion than aid, he knew. Now he called to them. Both boys are fine. Thanks for watching to help. As they carried Rick upstairs, Barbie hobbled out onto the landing. She was pale but composed until she saw Rick smile feebly at her. Then she broke into tears. Just like a woman, Rick teased huskily. He looked up at his mother. Except for you, Mom. There was pain in his leg now, and his head throbbed mightily. He was glad to feel the bed under him as they put him down, and glad to have his father remove his wet clothes. Mrs. Brandt hurried off to get clean sheets and blankets. Hartson Brandt inspected him from crown to sole. Bruises, he announced. You'll be sore tomorrow, one lump the size of a golf ball right above your nose and that cut leg. Otherwise, you're all right. How's Scotty? Rick asked. His voice had a tendency to gurgle when he talked. Scotty answered for himself from his own room. I'm okay. You all right? 
Rick shivered at the weakness of his friend's voice. Oh, okay, he said huskily. Dad, if you hadn't come... We'll talk about it later, Hartson Brand said. I hear a boat. It must be Tony returning with the doctor. Zircon's voice boomed from the next room, where he was undressing Scotty. A fine thing, an island full of doctors, and not a doctor of bloody medicine among us. Hartson, I'm going to study for a medical degree. In a short time, the physician was inspecting the boys for hidden damage. Nothing serious, he stated. That cut on Rick's leg will force him to be quieter than he likes for a few days, but that's it. Plane crash, you say? I'd say you have two very lucky young men here, Hartson. Rick winced as the doctor swabbed his leg with antiseptic, then clamped the edges of the wound together. Sterile gauze was put in place, and the leg was bandaged expertly. The doctor searched his bag and came up with a bottle of tablets. He measured out a half dozen and put them in an envelope. Two each before they go to sleep, he directed, just to ensure a good night's rest. Rick, come in to see me the day after tomorrow. How long do I have to stay here? Rick asked. No longer than you need to, the doctor replied. Why, do you feel like going out to, for a hot game of football? Maybe tomorrow, Rick said, grinning. I thought so. No, I suggest you stay in bed for the rest of the day. You can do as you like tomorrow, although I don't think you'll feel like doing much. The doctor snapped his bag shut. This is like old times, Rick. I haven't had to sew you up recently, have I? A few years ago, before you got older and wiser and started high school, I used to think I should buy a sewing machine just to keep you in repair. I've put enough stitches in you to make myself a suit. You did a good job, Rick said, smiling. I've hardly a scar that shows. Well, the doctor said, it wasn't for lack of trying. Hartson, I don't think you'll need me except to dress Rick's leg in a couple days, and he can come in for that. Will somebody run me back to the mainland? Briotti will, Hartson Brandt replied. I'll stay here and help Rick get into pajamas. The doctor hurried away, stopping long enough to look in on Barbie. Rick sat upright and slipped into a pajama coat. Then he swung his feet to the floor and got into his pajama trousers. He started to walk to his leather armchair and would have fallen except for Harson Brandt's steadying hand. He hadn't realized he was so weak. Mrs. Brandt changed the bed, which was wet with seawater, then kissed Rick and hurried to do the same for Scotty. Scotty appeared in the connecting doorway, supported by Hobart Zircon. For the first time, Rick noticed that both his father and Zircon were shoeless and dripping wet. Zircon sat Scotty on Rick's bed and then said, Artson, let's change these clothes. Then we can find out what happened. I'm bursting with curiosity. The boys looked at each other and grinned weakly as the scientists went to change. They shook hands silently. What happened? Scotty asked. I was knocked out. I came to draped over Zircon's shoulder like a bag of sand. I got knocked around, too. I got loose and tried to get you out. I made it, but I couldn't get to the surface. If Zircon and Dad hadn't been there, we'd both have had it. I came close a couple of times while I was in the Marines, but nothing like this. I guess we're both living on borrowed time now. Rick shuddered. Both of us, he agreed. 
and I don't want to have to do any more borrowing. Chapter 9. A Better Rat Trap Rise and shine, Scotty commanded. Rick opened his eyes and looked up. He'd been awake for some time, but just hadn't felt like making the effort to get out of bed. How do you feel? he asked. Scotty shrugged. Uh, to be frank, I've had better days. Rick sat up too fast and let out a grunt. His backbone had felt like the cracking of bamboo. I see what you mean, he said. More carefully, he swung his legs over the side of the bed, braced with his hands, and heaved himself to his feet. For a moment, the room swayed, and he plopped back down on the bed again. I thought I was getting feeble in my old age. Now I can see I'm not the only one. Try it again, Scotty joked. Rick did so, and his knees clicked like pennies dropped on marble. Now that he was upright, he began to ache all over. The doctor wasn't kidding when he said I wouldn't feel like a game of football, he said wryly. You look like a game of football, Scotty replied critically. He stared at Rick's eyes. Like the day after. You've got the loveliest pair of black eyes I've ever seen in a long time. Well, that accounted for his cloudy vision the day before, Rick thought. He must have had quite a knock on the forehead. A hot shower will take some of this stiffness away, he said. It did with mine. You shower and I'll make a safari downstairs, just to let Mom know we're up in time for breakfast. Be careful with that cut leg, though. A hot shower helped. Rick felt almost human as he dressed and went downstairs. Scotty and Barbie were already having breakfast. Three invalids, Barbie said. Two bad legs, and what do you have, Scotty? Gravel in the gizzard, Scotty answered. Every time I talk, it feels as though I were talking through a bushel of sand. What causes that, Rick? You swallowed a lot of water. I guess you breathe some in, too, Rick told him. Don't put any salt on your eggs. You've got enough to last for weeks. Scotty finished his bacon and eggs. Come on, get that breakfast down. I'm anxious to find out why we got into this particular mess. I want to know what happened to the cub. So did Rick. He had been so glad to get out of the crash alive, he hadn't thought much about the loss of his plane. Realizing he would never fly his beloved cub again made him choke up. So much he was glad to hear scratching at the door. It distracted the others so they couldn't see how he felt. Scotty went over to the door and let in the shaggy little dog. Barbie snapped her fingers. Come on, Diz. I've finished my breakfast, but you can have Rick's. Here I need all my strength, and you want to give my breakfast to the pup? Rick growled. But he wasn't serious. He took the best piece of bacon from his plate and gave it to Dismal. The pup sat down, studied the bacon for a moment, then gave a wild leap and gulped it without even trying to chew. He starved, Barbie said sympathetically. Aren't you, Diz? Dismal, pleased with the attention, rolled over and played dead. It was his only trick, and he never missed the chance to show it off. Mrs. Brandt's voice from the kitchen was suspicious. Rick, are you feeding Dismal at the table again? Just a little, Mom, 
He's hungry. Mrs. Brandt appeared in the doorway with a fresh platter of bacon and eggs. He's always hungry, she said with complete truth. I'll feed him in a few minutes. Scotty, here are more eggs for you. I think you'd better have a heavy breakfast this morning. You'll feel better. I feel fine, he assured her. But I'll eat anyway. Who's always hungry? Rick demanded. He grinned at his mother. How do you like my new facial scenery, Mom? Mrs. Brant smiled. I'm glad I looked in on you before you woke up. Having two eyes like that appear without warning at breakfast would be a shock. Are you sure you feel well enough to be up, Rick? I'm fine. Honest, Mom. And we're both anxious to find out what happened to the plane. Mrs. Brandt paled a little. I am too, Rick. You know, I've never worried about your flying. Very much, at least. I knew you were very careful. And I won't start worrying now, either. But I would like to know what happened yesterday. Will not happen again. Rick smiled grimly. It won't, if I have anything to say about it. Hartz and Brandt arrived in time to hear the last exchange. I took a walk down to the beach, Rick. The cub has shifted out to sea a little, but the tide is out, and I can see the tail clearly. I think we better get Huggins to bring the tractor over. We can put a rope around the tail and haul the plane out of the water fairly easily. I hope there's enough left to tell us what happened. The plane's all there but the wings, Rick assured him. Did you see the wings, Dad? No. Are you sure the wings aren't still on? Rick remembered definitely one wing was missing. The strut had been loose and the wing itself was gone. He wasn't sure about the other. But he had the impression that both wings were gone. It made him heartsick to think about it. I just remembered, Rick, that Jerry Webster called last night after you were asleep, his father said. I didn't give him any details except to say the controls had locked. Just said that you crashed off Pirate's Field. He'll want more details for the morning record, though. Will you call him? As soon as we find out what happened, Rick agreed. I want to give him a definite reason for the crash. There's no use letting the folks in Whiteside think I'm a bum flyer. They won't think that, Rick, Mrs. Brant said firmly. We've had a dozen calls since last night, and they all want to know what happened to the plane. No one thinks it was your fault. Scotty finished his second helping and carried his plate to the kitchen. When he returned, he asked, Will your legs stand up to walk, Rick? I, I think so. Feel stiff, but I can use it. He had taken his shower in the most awkward manner possible, holding his bandaged leg outside the shower curtain with a towel wrapped around his knee to keep the water from running down. He had succeeded in keeping the bandage pretty dry, but the bathroom had generally suffered. Water had dripped from the protecting towel to the floor. He remembered that he had forgotten to tell his mother that the floor was wet, he told her now, apologizing for the mess. Mrs. Brandt sighed. It's all right, Rick, but haven't you ever heard of a sponge bath? I forgot, he admitted. All I could think of was getting under some hot water. I didn't even think about the leg until I had the water fixed just right and got out of my pajamas. Barbie shook her head. That's the trouble with men. They don't know how to be graceful patients. Come on, I'm going to the beach with you. We can limp together, Rick. Hartz and Brant got Huggins, the island farmer, on the phone. He issued instructions and then joined the boys. 
I'll get Hobart Zircon, too. He'll be able to help. Who's going to put the rope around it, Dad? I can't go in the water. I don't think Scotty can either, Rick asked. You're right, the scientist agreed. I must be getting absent-minded. You three go ahead. I'll get into bathing trunks. They stopped at the laboratory and picked up Zircon. Shannon and Briody stopped their work, too, and joined in the walk to the beach. As the group reached Pirate's Field, Huggins was just driving the tractor out of the woods. It was a light tractor, built especially for small farms. Rick could see the cub clearly through the green water. The tail was just below the surface. It would be an easy matter to slip the noose around it. The change of tides during the night had moved the plane about 50 yards in the direction of the open sea. The others talked about the smash-up, but Rick said nothing. He just didn't feel like talking. Sight of the wreck had brought back vividly the few seconds after the crash. Rick thought minutes had passed, but his father assured him he had probably been underwater for less than two minutes in all. The second time he had gone down after surfacing to breathe, he had been under about 50 seconds. Certainly it was less than a minute. Shock and panic had speeded up time. Normally he could hold his breath underwater for much more than a minute. Harrison Brandt came through the woods dressed in trunks. He talked with Huggins, then took a rope from the farmer and fashioned a noose. He slipped one arm through the noose and waded into the water. Within minutes he was ashore again, the noose secured around the tail of the plane. Huggins had meanwhile tied the shore end firmly to the back of the tractor. He climbed into his seat, and at a signal from the scientist, he took up the slack in the rope and started ahead. The watchers lost sight of the cub in the murky cloud that rose from the bottom. Little by little, the tractor moved ahead until the tail emerged. In a moment, the cub was moving slowly up onto the beach. It was a sorry sight. Both wings were gone. The propeller was only two jagged stumps. The windshield had broken where Rick had put his foot through the plexiglass, and it was torn away in other places. The fabric was ripped, and the undercarriage was bent back at an angle that showed that something was badly damaged. Rick swallowed hard. Barbie squeezed his arm. We'll get another cub, she whispered. I've saved a little money for my allowance, Rick. You can have that. Rick was touched. He knew Barbie had no real idea of the cost of a plane. All she could save if she kept her entire allowance wouldn't buy a new prop. He ruffled her hair. Thanks, sis. Thanks. Her generous offer made him feel better. He walked to the plane as the tractor hauled it high above the beach and looked into the cabin. It was a mess. He didn't wait for the farmer to unhitch the rope. He leaned in and tried the control wheel. It moved easily. He looked back at the tail in disbelief and tried again. Except for the rope, nothing blocked the movement of his tail surfaces. But they were locked, he exclaimed. Probably whatever locked them came apart when you hit, Rick. Zircon boomed. I think we had better start tracing the cables from the cabin back to the tail. There was a hail from the edge of the woods. Rick looked up to see Jerry Webster and Gus, the airport manager. He shouted a greeting. If the trouble could be found, Gus would find it. The two ran up to the group and shook hands all around. Jerry said, I hope we be in time. 
I do doggone well. You be looking for trouble first thing in the morning. Gus growled. Thought you knew better than to try landing on water. Are you a pilot or a duck? Rick grinned. Anyway, I don't chase girls in a plane. Gus had cracked up the year before trying to avoid a girl who walked across the runway just as he was putting his plane down. He had ground looped and broken an arm. Rick had kept up the joking belief that Gus had been trying to chase the girl off the field. I was trying to spoil her hairdo, Gus retorted. Well, what are we waiting for? Or do you know what jam you controls? How did you know the controls were jammed? Barbie demanded. Gus pulled a Whiteside morning record from his pocket and handed it to her. Read all about it in the Daily Bleat. Compliments to the author, Jay Webster, that is. Scotty cracked. You got your facts right for once, Jerry? Jerry looked pained. I only write fairy tales where news is dull. Like Gus says, what are we waiting for? The press is anxious to find out the truth. You take over, Gus, Hartson Brant invited. Where should we start looking? The airport manager took a jackknife from his pocket. First thing is, get the fabric off. No use trying to save it. Unless I'm getting blind, this plane ain't never going to fly again. The entire frame is twisted. Rick winced as Gus stuck the knife into the unbroken fabric of the front of the tail and ripped a long gash. He walked along, letting his knife tear the stiff covering. When he was right in the back of the cabin windows, he put the knife away, took the fabric in both hands, and jerked. It ripped away in big strips. The zircon helped, and in a moment, the side of the fuselage was bare. Gus reached in through the naked tubular ribs and took the cables which controlled the tail surfaces in his hand. He pulled, and the elevators responded. They work. Whatever jammed them must have come loose. Rick joined him as he walked from tail to cab and looking at the cables. Suddenly, Gus bent down and touched a square block of wood. What's that? Rick asked. He had never seen it before. I've heard of termites in planes, Gus said, but never rats. When did you start having rat trouble? The group crowded around. There was no mistaking the object attached to the plane. It was a common rat trap. Rick stared, puzzled. The trap was wired to a piece of metal, which was hinged on one of the structural members. The metal had been a small door, the inspection port, located just behind the cabin. It was at the point where all the control cables from the control column passed before separating. From that point, the tail cables went back along the fuselage and the aileron cables ran up to the wings. Would that have caused the trouble? Zircon asked. Gus scratched his head. I don't know. The cables pass right in front of it, close enough to touch it, but I don't see how they could have caught on it. It, it must mean something, Rick objected. I didn't put it there. Scotty wouldn't put it there. Scotty shook his head. Nope, not me. Never saw it before. What's that thing on a string at the bottom of the plane? Barbie asked. Gus followed her pointing finger, reached down to the bottom of the fuselage where the fabric was untorn, and came up with a bolt which was tied to a piece of heavy string. He handed it to Rick. Rick took it, examined it, and then handed it back. 
I never saw it before either, but it must have something. He stopped short as his eyes caught a broken end of string hanging from the topmost piece of tubing in the frame. His eye estimated quickly. That string was tied exactly on line with the rat trap. Yesterday taking off, he had flown straight ahead climbing. When he reached a good altitude, he banked left. The plane refused to come out of it. The controls had locked as he banked. Words tumbled out of him as he saw it instantly, clearly what had happened. It was deliberate, he choked. Scotty, everybody, I know why the controls locked up. It was sabotage.